Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to soundcloud.com slash media people podcast, or you can subscribe on your favorite podcast service like Apple Podcasts or CastBox. Views expressed by participants are personal. You can call Brooke Robinson many things, social media maven, entrepreneur, and multiple sclerosis survivor. One of the OGs of social media strategy, Brooke's career started at Sun Life Financial, where she was charged with managing their social media presence. It was an interesting time to be working in social media, as brands had only begun to take this medium seriously as a marketing channel. With no playbook available, it was up to Brooke to craft one from scratch. Her experience took her to the agency world, where she would start and head up Mindshare Canada's first ever social media department. It was there she worked on campaigns for clients such as American Express and Ford, to name a couple. It was during this time that Brooke was handed her biggest challenge yet. She was diagnosed with an accelerated form of multiple sclerosis, one that had her walking with a cane and was poised to have her wheelchair bound. A chance meeting with a stranger would set her recovery in motion. He advised Brooke about an experimental treatment in Ottawa. She qualified for the procedure, which put her MS into remission. Brooke's gone out on her own, founding BRS, where she's lending her marketing experience and wisdom to a variety of clients. BRS is actually a company that I started. Uh, currently, it has one employee being me. Uh, so I'm the CEO and the founder. And it was built out of over a decade of experience in social media marketing for me, which not a lot of people can say. So I started my career at Sun Life building uh, their social media channels and, and their content and their guidelines and then moved into sort of the media paid side uh, with Mindshare. So um, out of that, I got a really good understanding of what the client's uh, are looking for in social media, native advertising and content and sort of getting their business needs across. So uh, I wanted to make sure that I can offer them uh, the best approach um, and solutions for their business needs. So um, I started my own marketing and advertising company and work with a few clients uh, across a number of different verticals. Let's go back to the beginning. Where are you from? Well, I'm a small city girl from Sarnia, Ontario. A border town. A border town, that's right. We used to spend a lot of time going across the border uh, and making sure that we uh, took advantage of all of the offerings in the, in the United States. Since Are you talking about outlet, sho- outlet shopping? Absolutely. They had a huge mall over there, uh, and they had a Chuck E. Cheese, which we didn't have in Sarnia, and we spent a lot of time hanging out. Um, just doing shopping uh, and making sure that we got fries under the bridge. So anyone who goes to Sarnia, definitely get your fries under the bridge. They're better than anywhere else in Canada. Is that the name of a restaurant, fries under the bridge? Or is there literally just kind of like a, like yeah. a chip truck and you eat them under the bridge? No, it's literally a chip truck under the bridge. So there's actually two bridges now. Um, <laughs> but the idea is that you go down there and there's a few chip trucks. And Albert's is actually the best one. So there's a tip for you. You spent most of your life in Sarnia, right? Like you were born and raised and you grew up there, correct? Absolutely. I grew up there until I was 18 and went off to university. Spent a lot of time in Sarnia just doing kind of bush parties and meeting up at Canaterra Park. And then when you get a little bit older and you you move to university, you realize that Sarnia um, isn't really big enough and, and there's more opportunities outside. So I haven't gone back except to visit my family, um, but it is a good retirement place. Something I find interesting about your life growing up, 
you are into both sport and the arts. Usually someone's into one or the other, but you found a way to fuse them both together. So tell us a bit about that. You were into hockey and drawing and painting? So I was the third of uh, the third child in my family, and I was the last born and the only girl. And I had all boy cousins, so we loved to play hockey. Well, the boys loved to play hockey, and, and I wanted to get involved. And so I wanted to do a lot of the activities that they were doing. And so they loved putting me in, in the goaltending position. So if I wanted to play, they would shoot pucks at me, which was great. So I got to do that as a child, and I, so I loved playing sports. And then I also spent a lot of time sort of drawing and just um, really diving into, like, superheroes and and you know, creating, like, Spider-Man was my favorite. Um, You're preaching to the choir here. Yeah, exactly, right? My comic book collection, we could do a whole podcast series on that. Ah, uh, have you read the new Venom? No, I have not read the new Venom. Ah, uh, it's One that I've got to get into. And didn't Catwoman and Batman get married? No, they broke up just before they were supposed to get married. Spoiler alert, if anyone's listening, she Ooh. realized that she would bring Batman happiness, and then that's how you would kill Batman without actually killing Bruce Wayne. It's pretty impressive. Very poetic. Yeah. Why do you cite Judge Deborah Austin as one of your biggest influences growing up? When you look at who would be your sort of idol and your someone to look up to and sort of um, replicate and, and, and try to be like when you're older, um, I always had somebody that was around me. Uh, and Judge Austin was the first one um, who was a woman that uh, was a provincial court judge in Sarnia and she invited me in as a co-op student in my OAC year. Um, yeah, that's right. I was the last of the OAC in Canada. Uh, and she really um, took a liking to me, I guess, and, and uh, would show me sort of materials and give me opportunities and experiences that she felt like uh, would help me make a decision on whether I wanted to become a lawyer and sort of follow that pathway. And so she's really the most, um, the first and most influential person in, in my life because she's a very accomplished businesswoman and she's very good at sort of training and giving me advice and sort of she actually changed um, my thought process and, and my understanding of what it, what it was going to take to be a lawyer. Working back in Sarnia though, you had two really interesting jobs, bus girl and blackjack dealer. Tell us about both of them. Officially, my first job was at uh, I'm delivering papers. Uh, but when I was looking at getting a sort of regular paycheck, it was actually when I was 16. I worked at Hiawatha, which is uh, just like Woodbine. It's a race park. And I was um, a bus girl and then a server and then a bartender. Uh, and so it seems that in Sarnia, all of my all of my jobs kind of rotated around betting in some form. Uh, there was a lot of horse betting and I was managing uh, kind of the mezzanine where the guys would, would sign up their simulcast. And then later on, uh, I was hired on at the Point Edward Casino as a blackjack dealer. So I was um, qualified to uh, deal blackjack, three-card, four-card poker, um, Texas Hold'em, and Caribbean Stud. Was that stressful? Because I, I see those, like I make it out to Casino Niagara a couple times a year, and I think that the dealers at the tables have the most stressful job in the world, apart from air traffic controllers. It's really interesting because you only work for 40 minutes at a time. So Really? Yeah. So your brain actually uh, can only stay focused without minim with minimal mistakes in your counting and observation that uh, you work 40 minutes and then you have 20 minutes off. So... Uh, 
it's it's not as stressful perhaps as you think. They do accommodate for sort of you know um, your math your math mistakes, but um, it's actually really exciting. And uh, and I would say my favorite was just actually getting at the $5 tables versus sort of the higher limit tables because people take it less seriously and they enjoy the banter that comes around uh, while you're dealing cards. What's the training like for that? I imagine you got to spend hours learning table etiquette, shadowing people just so you get it right the first time. Yeah, so it's very clear. So the cameras are constantly on you. And just to serve blackjack, you have to have at least two weeks of training. And so you sit in a room and you deal the cards and you play with the chips and you have to be able to shuffle the chips and make sure you don't cross your hands. There's tons of rules that um, are specifically for the camera so that you're not interrupting anything. If you drop a chip on the floor, which does happen, everything stops. Like the entire casino has to stop if a chip falls on the floor and security comes in. And it can be a huge delay for the people playing cards. But uh, it's actually quite a fiasco when something as simple as a chip falling. What brought you to Western University and what did you study there? So Western University, uh, I did my undergraduate in honors history. I didn't plan to do that when I started. We now know I was thinking about being a lawyer, and I started with psychology and um, so that I would understand sort of human behaviors. Uh, in first year, you take general arts, and I actually um, did the worst in my history course, but it was the most um, interesting and, and the most challenging for me, so I actually changed my major um, because in history... It feels like you understand how more things become, how, how they manifest and, and how, um, you know, they overcome challenges in order to make things happen. And, and uh, when you focus in on a specific niche or a specific um, specialty that you, that you don't really get an understanding of how everything works together – what was it about that history course? Was there like what part of history did it focus on that really kind of got you interested in shifting it to your major? To be honest, it was like totalitarianism was my <laughs> was my course, um, and I actually studied uh, different regimes, um, but in different facets. So I actually studied urbanization of Berlin prior to World War II, um, and you can imagine who the character was uh, yep. of study. Um, and I also looked at um, different political situations. So I had American politics and European politics. So really a lot about how worlds were shaped. Um, one of the most kind of obscure was actually urbanization. So you got to learn about Macedonia and how like different people came to be and how they, how they shaped their world and what they thought about first. And it was really kind of interesting to me where everything had beginnings. You went backpacking through Europe, and you also reapplied to Humber College to do your certificate in PR. Talk about backpacking Europe and what it did for you personally and professionally. I went into my uh, undergraduate at Western thinking that I was going to be a lawyer. And uh, when I changed my major to Humber, I still wrote my LSATs and still thought about it. But kind of in fourth year, I felt like I wasn't um, really ready to move in to um, a career. And so I took uh, the next eight months to save up all my money from uh, bartending at a local Irish pub and decided to pick up my stuff and go backpacking through Europe on my own for three months. And I started in Ireland uh, and made my way through 29 countries in three months. And 
at one point I jumped on a Kentucky tour and I um, met the bus driver and ended up dating him who was Australian, which led into my sort of next career step. Uh, so I did a public relations program um, because I felt like uh, I wanted to help with the reputation of brands and celebrities or just sort of get in that sort of communication um, and making stories, uh, let's say, go viral before we were using that term viral. And public relations was really uh, popular at the time. A lot of people were um, trying to get into the field and agencies were popping up everywhere. Um, so it seemed like a really great start. Looking back at Humber, how different was it from, say, doing your undergraduate degree at Western? Now that I look back on it, it actually was a perfect transition uh, into sort of the career mode. So Humber College was for postgraduates, so you had to have your university degree. They actually taught you the skills of a PR professional in the sort of technical sense. So we would be sitting in class and uh, we would actually have to come up with a story pitch and we would call our professor who was up in his in his office um, and actually go through a media relations pitch. So they would teach you sort of that hands-on so you were ready to go as soon as you um, stepped into your job. As part of it, there was a co-op program, so you actually had to do a two-month unpaid internship. And it was 2008, so there wasn't a lot of a lot of agencies hiring. So I ended up uh, heading back to Australia um, to stay with my boyfriend at the time's family uh, and worked at a PR agency there that was uh, in Western Australia that was an affiliate to Hill & Knowlton. And then you find your way back here. And you did a bit of freelance work before you landed a gig full-time. Talk about the freelance work. The freelance work was when I got back and I was looking for a job. And my professor, who I had worked with um, in at Humber, uh, grading some papers and things, was actually gracious enough to set me up with a couple of his clients. Um, and it was really great. I was doing some basic things that maybe interns weren't quite ready to, to finish up or needed a little help. Um, so I was sort of like a... Uh, manager of some some uh, inf uh, intern work. From there, you landed at Sun Life. What did you do there? So when I started at Sun Life Insurance, I was actually on a three-month contract to revamp their intranet. So I was interviewing the business group executives, so their enterprise services, um, and rewriting the content and what their department's um, services were and sort of uploading that content into the CMS. So it was, it was completely like digital communications and um, I was doing all the back-end work. But after that three-month contract, you were promoted to senior specialist social media. This was back at a time when social media was a buzzword and it was kind of like the wild, wild west. What did the role entail there? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was the Wild West. So they basically clumped it in uh, the corporate marketing team, and it was or it was senior social specialist of social media and internet. So I was still doing some of the work on the internet and the back end, but now I was uh, also making sure that our content could be published uh, via social channels. So I was like 24 years old and setting up the standards for communicating on social across the entire company. Like they're still using my logo from today. Uh, that I developed back in 2010 um, across their country pages. So it's crazy to think about now, uh, but I was consistently working with company lawyers and compliance officers and pitching them ideas uh, that was often pretty difficult in such a compliance and risk-averse industry. Was it difficult to make insurance sexy for social media? Because that's the thing with social media. If you don't have great content, it's not a platform you should be on. 
that's interesting because an insurance company isn't just insurance. Um, they have a story that they're adding value to the consumer. So we actually created this brighterlife.ca content marketing platform that was award-winning um, back in 2012. And it was kind of like the first of its kind. And the idea was that this would be um, pre-approved content that all of their advisors could use out there that would be relevant for them to share with their audience and actually add value to their lives. Um, so my team there would would basically manage all the different business groups. So with the insurance and you know the unsexiness of critical illness and long-term disability, um, there was also sponsorship content with the CFL and Raptors uh, later on, and and there was also uh, brighter life content that was, you know, a little bit lighter and more about how, you know, how to keep your kids occupied for the summer break or, um, you know, how to make sure that you fill out your taxes correctly. So really about managing your finances in life, but valued content. And you discovered that contesting works very well on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. So back then we used to, I mean, on Facebook, the idea was to collect as many fans as possible. And then all of your content would reach those fans organically. Unfortunately, um, that doesn't happen today. But back then it was a big deal. So in 2012, we actually were able to like gate. Uh, so we run a CFL con- uh, sponsorship. Uh, so our logos were on the jerseys and we got a few free jerseys. So I basically said, hey, can I have those jerseys? We'll run a Facebook contest for page likes. And all of a sudden we've got 5,000 Facebook fans and all it cost was delivery of jerseys to the winners. After Sun Life, you moved over to iTravel2000. Being someone who had seen, when you were backpacking, you saw what, 29 countries you said? Mm-hmm. 29 countries. This must have seemed like kind of a, a dream job or a natural fit. Yeah, it was actually really exciting to step over uh, into the travel industry. It felt like the content uh, would be sort of much more aligned with my passions. Uh, And unfortunately, I got there and found out that all of the OTAs are actually getting the same data feeds. So it really wasn't um, the dream job that I was hoping for. And um, I, you know, I stuck it out for about eight months, but then it really felt like I wasn't, um, challenging my own skills. And so I moved over, uh, to Mindshare. That's interesting because usually the way the dream works is you graduate, you get into the agency world, and then you move brand or client side. You did it backwards. You got your client opportunity or your brand opportunity right out of, uh, right out of Humber. And then you decided to pivot and go into the agency world. Was that a big? Was that a bit of a shock to you going that way? It it was a bit of a shock, but I was really looking for it. I think when we start at when we start in in a role, we sort of set expectations, and not every corporation functions like Sun Life um, or I Travel Two Thousand. But things do tend to move a little bit slower when you work with a corporation because there's a lot more variables involved and a lot more teams and people. Uh, when you work at an agency, it's really about the best service to your client. So everybody is all hands on deck to make those deliverables happen. Um, but you also, you may end up working a few hours more than you'd like to um, and, you know, working weekends when you don't want to. But on the other on the other hand, you have access to so much in such little time. So um, your skill set can really evolve quickly with an agency versus um, versus within a company. And you were, what, employee number one in their paid social department? 
Yeah, so I, there was two of us. I started, uh, and it was just a team of two, and Facebook Zero was happening. So remember, we talked about like gating on Sun Life. Uh, now it was very clear that your fans weren't actually seeing your content organically, or a very small percentage of them were. Um, so when I started, that was my biggest challenge, was to have to go and convince clients not to spend money on fan acquisition now, but to actually allocate that money to amplifying their messages. Was social primarily back then Facebook for you? It really was. Uh, Twitter was available and we used it really for kind of real-time activations. But back in 2014, Facebook was much further ahead than the rest of um, the social platforms, including LinkedIn. Um, You know, Pinterest hadn't even considered advertising at that point and Snapchat wasn't even a thing. Um, So it was heavily on Facebook where the community was. Something happened, though, in your personal life physically to you while you were at Mindshare. Tell us about your MS discovery. For those of you who don't really know much about multiple sclerosis out there, it's very much an invisible disease. So your immune system somewhere along the lines learns that your central nervous system is a germ and it attacks it. Where it attacks it, it'll leave lesions that sort of act like um, electrical shorts in your brain pathways. So your brain's trying to tell you to listen or walk or see, and it's interrupted by these scarring, these lesions that that's that sort of, you know, cause a break in the neural pathway. And for me, all of my scarring actually was on my lower spine. So it all started out as bowel and bladder issues. And it went undiagnosed for uh, since I was probably 26 till about the time I was 30. Um, And so what I know now, um, after a lot of struggle um, silently while I was at Mindshare, is that the 80% of people have relapse remitting. So they'll actually recover from a short bout um, and then they'll go through remission and there's drugs that will speed up relapses and there's drugs that will prolong remission. However, for me, I ended up having an actually a, a very aggressive type of MS. I was finally diagnosed in April of 2015, so about a year and a half after starting at Mindshare. And within three, uh, within six months, by October of 2015, I was walking with a cane. You had a chance meeting, though, with an individual on the street. This is like something out of a, of a Disney movie. Like, it sounds like a plot device. You had a chance meeting with someone who put you on the path to recovery. Tell us about that. So by October of 2015, I was walking with a cane, which meant that my progression was very fast. And there's an EDSS scale that sort of identifies, you know, where you are in the disease. And I was very close to living the rest of my life in a wheelchair. That following summer, so in June of 2016, I was just finishing up work at Mindshare and I had got on the subway to the Danforth where I was meeting up with my husband later. And just outside of the restaurant, this gentleman pulls up in a little scooter and he points at my cane and he says, is that permanent? And I looked at him and I was like, yeah, I have MS. And turns out, (laughs) so does he. And we stood there and talked for about 40, 45 minutes. And he had learned all about this um, procedure that was happening in Ottawa and London, England. And it actually revamps your entire immune system and is a stem cell transplant. So um, he knew about it uh, because he had tried to get into the trial uh, and it wasn't public knowledge at the time. So this really was kind of a miracle 
that we met each other on this on the side of the street at this point. So he immediately told me how this procedure works, and and the results were basically. Uh, 19 years ago, 24 patients were brought in, and of all of those patients, not one of them has any new sign of the disease. So they have no new signs of, of MS. And so I immediately was like, I need to get into this. So I went home, I emailed the doctor who was in charge, and within 10 minutes, he had messaged me back. Um, and from there, I just catalyst. So by so this was in the summer, so June of 2016. By August of 2016, I was meeting the doctors. By October, I was having my stem cells harvested. Something that we have, something that I we don't want to underplay here is that you said that they they reset or reboot your immune system, but the truth is that they actually strip you of your immune system first before they reboot it. Yeah, you were you were living like a bubble girl or a bubble woman for Absolutely. a bit. Absolutely, like literally, someone could sneeze on you while you were going through the treatment and that could be terminal. Yeah. So yeah. So the treatment is actually very similar to what they do for leukemia patients, except they're my own stem cells. So in October they started collecting the stem cells. So I had one dose of chemotherapy, um, which if you will, kills off some of the older stem cells that, you know, have been teaching all the new stem cells about MS. So they kill off a few of those and then they pump you with Neupigen, which is a stem cell stimulant. So it creates a bunch of brand new stem cells that they extract through a centrifuge machine. So they hook you up to a centrifuge machine, blood comes out one, spits up all the baby stem cells, um, and then they take those away and clean them. Kind of like a dialysis machine a little bit. It, it's it probably is sim- like a dialysis machine, just smaller, maybe different settings. Okay. Um, and so then uh, I ended up coming back in December for two weeks of treatment. So for ten consecutive days, they would give me chemotherapy. Um, so four or five hours um, every day, and I had to stay in the hospital for four nights. And otherwise, I was only allowed to go to my uh, Airbnb or the hospital. So, and anywhere I went outside, I had to have a mask on. Um, I had to keep my hands clean. That's the biggest thing out there, guys, for germs is carry your Purell um, because because germs are really um, the killer. And, and if your hands aren't clean and you're touching your face, like that's really what they scare you about when you're going through these kind of treatments. So I was locked in a very um, bubble-like um, section of the hospital with other leukemia patients. Um, and then I was uh, very like wrapped up anytime I went outside for about two months. And then when did you finally get the get the news that it was in remission officially? They won't really tell you because it is a clinical trial. They won't tell you um, what sort of expectations you should have. For example, um, a friend of mine uh, who just went underwent the procedure about a year ago is uh, now starting to see some less pain. He had a shooting pain in his leg, but he still very much has tremors, which um, is very like Parkinson-like, and that hasn't quelled. So you don't know how your symptoms are going to bounce back. It really depends on your body. For me, it was about three months and I didn't need my cane anymore. Do you have to go through any physical therapy after that to kind of relearn how to walk because you had spent so many months yeah. dealing with that? So you lose a lot of muscle um, mass, so atrophy, your muscles atrophy, because you don't have that um, that neural pathway, the brain connection. So your muscles don't know to – they're not functioning properly. Like 
you could probably go through some physiotherapy officially, but I actually did a lot of yoga. So I, I keep up with yoga, meditation. I can't necessarily go jogging like I used to or necessarily play hockey, but for all intents and purposes, um, I'm, I'm healed. And you were still, I mean, you had obviously taken time off work for this, but you were still pushing forward with your career while this was happening, correct? You were still a Mindshare employee. Yeah, I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned in hindsight is that my health should come first. So um, as stressed out as I was making myself over my team and work and and things like that, I should have taken a bit more time. But I was back on phone calls or emergency emails or anything that was needed within those two months, I would say. Just in case someone's listening to this and they're dealing with MS right now and they're unfamiliar with uh, the treatment you had – how do they go about finding more information or even getting finding out if they qualify for it? Not a lot of people qualify. Like About 5% of people who have MS will qualify for this because your MS has to be bad enough that you need this type of invasive treatment and you also have to be healthy enough in order to get through it. Um, so patients who have relapse remitting, who aren't really experiencing any lasting symptoms, should continue with their typical regime from their neurologist. But if you are looking for more information um, on this disease or really anything MS-related, um, I'm happy to help. Uh, so you can find information on my website, so brookrobinson.ca. But also um, keep researching it. They're opening up offices for this type of treatment all over the world. Uh, Selma Blair, actually, an actress who came out um, and announced her MS uh, extremely bravely back uh, during the Oscars last year at the Vanity um, Fair after party. She came out with her cane and was in a full relapse. And you saw um, how devastating multiple cirrhosis can be on a person during a relapse. And uh, she now, uh, she hasn't really made a big announcement about it, but it's very clear and she's, she's actually tagged it, uh, hashtag HSCT, which stands for hematopoietic stem cell transplant. Um, so she's clearly just gone through it as well. Harbinger Communications. This was your first foray into influencer marketing and it's kind of led you into where your career is now. What attracted you to it and influencer marketing in general? I actually have like sort of original or OG, uh, original gangster experience in influencer marketing. So I knew sort of the painstaking uh, days of Excel sheets and calling influencers and drafting contracts and manually tracking data. Um, so it wasn't new for me, but what this role was, was an opportunity to test my consulting skills. So it was a two-month contract to come in and elevate their existing influencer marketing strategy and train the team to activate on it. So uh, I sat down with every individual that worked there and got a sense of what was working, what wasn't, and what was missing. Um, Deborah Adams, who is running uh, Harbinger Communications right now, is just an incredible public relations leader. And the clients are really lucky to have her. And she she's a fantastic person to look up to. It's from there that you decided to go out on your own. And I wanted to ask you a quick question because a lot of people want to go out on their own, but they're a little afraid to do so. Was it easier to do so after you had kicked MS in the ass? Because I got to imagine very little scared you after that. So, yeah, I mean, I was facing uh, the rest of my life in a wheelchair. And uh, then, you know, with a chance meeting of a gentleman, I ended up beating it. So now that, you know, I'm I'm healthy and uh I sort of took a look at, you know, what is it that I really want to do? And 
my time at Harbinger was a bit of a nudge from uh, a personal and um, sorry, it was a bit of a nudge to move into uh, consulting on my own because it was a consulting role. But then I actually um, had a lot of personal and professional friends that reached out and were sort of willing to help me and, and encourage me along the way. You know, I, I moved into it and I think uh, starting on your own without any capital and walking away from a regular paycheck was probably the hardest. But I quickly realized that all of my other experiences were so transferable to running um, this business. So like managing my clients' um, budgets and, and their scoping and, you know, who's going to be working on the campaign? Do I need to call freelancers? Um, that was all something that I managed on my team at Mindshare um, as well as, you know, throughout my career and different roles. You've got a number of different hats, though, as a consultant now. Let, let's start going through a couple of them. Smart Tones Media, what is it? And why should, be, why should people be paying attention to it? So Smart Tones Media is really exciting. And, and this is part of, you know, what you get to do when, when it's your own company. You get to select your clients. So Smart Tones is a media company that was developed out of the digital media zone at Ryerson. And they've actually trademarked technology that can identify predictive moments within sporting events. So like a free kick in soccer. Um, and then they can send you a, a notification to select the outcome. So if you think about it, it's kind of like having, you know, live betting or... Um, live fantasy sports right within your uh, chatbot or your um, WhatsApp or your text messaging, SMS. This um, is perfect for soccer, especially if they're taking a corner kick or it's the World Cup final and they've come down to penalty shootouts. Exactly. And this summer, we actually worked with um, a team of graduate business marketing students from Europe who helped us devise some, some planning and some strategies for activating for Euro 2020. I think the irony behind this is, is that if you go to a sporting event now, you see so many people with their faces into their phones. Some of them aren't paying attention. The others are trying to get whatever moment happened 10 minutes ago on social media. And you've actually found a way through their devices to get them even more engaged into what's happening. Absolutely. I mean, the the whole idea behind it came from the CEO, Daryl, who's actually Daryl Hemingway, who's actually an astronaut. The idea was to combat uh, broadcast advertising and sort of logo placements. So things that, you know, we can't actually give verified metrics on during a game for fan engagement. We can now do that with smart tones. So if you're engaging with the with the app during the game on predictive moments like free kicks in real time, um, then you're a really highly valuable audience to any brand, really. Um, and brand placements can easily be put in the newsfeed naturally. So um, the results have been incredible. Um, in January, we're going to be launching a loyalty program for all fan points. So we're not quite into the gambling yet, but... Um, this is going to be done through an IBM incubator program and all the data will be stored in an IBM blockchain. So it's completely fraud free, which is really attractive for brands um, as the technology is changing. Piersway Nano Influencers. Before we go any further, I think you might need to explain to the audience what a nano influencer is because I think they know what an influencer is but a nano influencer. So I think the influencer landscape is really changing and nano influencers is kind of a new phrase that we're popping into so everyone's aware out there it's basically influencers with anywhere from 500 to 10,000 followers but we've already spoken about um, Facebook Zero and how people are 
um, posting content, but very low percentages of your audience are seeing that content organically without paid behind it. So what Peersway has done is basically automated the entire influencer negotiation and setup process and allows you to work with these influencers for a super cost-efficient um, price in your, in your marketing budget. Another project you're working on is ALZ Live. Tell us a bit about that. So ALZLive.com is a website for Alzheimer's caregivers. And I, I, this is another chance meeting where I actually met David Kelso, who's the CEO and founder. Uh, and he used to be a huge creative executive. So they called him Million Dollar Dave. And he used to do the commercials for GM. Uh, so if there was going to be a commercial and Dave was working on it, it was going to be a million dollars. So what he did was put all of his creative direction into um, creating a platform that is the best quality content that you can imagine for Alzheimer's caregivers. And there's such a need out there for these types of resources and this content because um, right now there's 500,000 people out there in Canada suffering from Alzheimer's and dementia. And those people can't really express what's going on inside them. So actually near and dear to my heart with multiple cirrhosis being an invisible disease, it's difficult to express their symptoms and what they're feeling and what they're going through. So it relies on the caregiver. And if each of those patients has 1.5 primary caregivers and three to five secondary caregivers, that's over 2.5 million people who are affected by um, Alzheimer's in their daily lives. And the 500 or 2.5 million people that, that need resources and need to be talked to because um, even if you go to the associations uh, like the Alzheimer's Society, the content is so fragmented, it's difficult to find on the internet. So this is one of those causes that, you know, I, I'm standing behind and, and choosing to work on, which is really exciting. Some rapid fire questions. The campaign you're most proud of? Global first that I did with Share Through and Amex. What keeps you up at night? Stock images. Seriously, like they're the bane of my existence and the reason I'm into nano influencers. But did you see that a lot in social? Like you put together a post and you use something from Getty Images and then a month later you find out someone else is using that image somewhere else in the world for a completely different product. Absolutely. And Facebook and Google are on it, guys. They're ranking your content for how original it is. Favorite movie? Face Off. Guys, it has everything. Travolta and Cage. <laughs> and boat boat smashes and <laughs> all kinds of great they action pu- scenes. Yeah, somehow the face transplant means your body also changes to, to the yeah, person Yeah, right? Sci-fi. Dog. Exactly. Love story. It's fantastic. Your favorite book? Uh, Fight Club, because it was so much better than the movie, which I didn't think was possible. But Chuck Palahniuk is a fantastic writer. Favorite song? Okay, I don't really have a favorite song. I always love Aerosmith, but Taylor Swift gets me every time. Like, I dance to pretty much anything that she sings. Best advice you've ever received? So when I was in a bit of a rough place, my Facebook agency partner actually said to me, Brooke, go surround yourself with good people and they will lift with you. And I think that was definitely the best piece of advice because you don't need to waste time on people that are going to put you down. So find the ones that will lift you up and work together. If you could go back in time and give your younger self advice, what would it be? 
I'd say spend less time waiting for things to happen and just go make them happen. Um, I've had those chance situations in my life, uh, and every time I take advantage of them um, and do the impossible, then it seems to work out. So that would be my, my best advice to my younger self. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? Oh, I'd absolutely own a small pop-up type store on a beach somewhere and enjoying the simple things while maybe still helping people on the projects that really matter. No fries on the beach or under the bridge? No, no. When I visit my parents, (laughs) I'll make sure I get some fries under the bridge. Brooke, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, anytime. Thanks so much for having me, Victor. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to soundcloud.com slash Podcast or subscribe on your favorite podcast service like Apple Podcasts or CastBox. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at VicGenova.